Welcome to this very special edition of Eusebius on Times Live. I'm delighted to say that I have Douglas Stewart with me in this episode. And Douglas Stewart has written an absolutely brilliant second novel, Young Mungo, and that is after his Booker Prize winning first one, uh, Shoggy Bane, that did so incredibly well. And he had no doubt what would be the ultimate burden that all debut writers who do well must deal with. And that is, should I just retire, quit while I'm ahead? Or should I have a go at potentially disappointing my readers? And as I said in my own review on timeslive.co.za, I do think that his first book was absolutely brilliant. But in a sense, I don't have to choose which one I like more. But if you put a gun against my head, I think that his follow-up has been even more of an aesthetic and moral achievement. So no disappointment. And the book sales here in South Africa... And both the book sales, but more importantly, the critical discussion across the literary globe on a second book, I think bear out the fact that it's been a very successful follow-up on his first. And um, I'm delighted that he has made time for me, um, hot after returning from a very grueling book tour back in New York City at the moment. You're listening to Eusebius on Times Live. That's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're going to hear a lot of law, politics and ethics, how they intersect and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. When people saw their children must know these are sellouts. They put saliva on the paper. Mr. Julius Malema whispered and said, sing it, sing it. And then they shared that zone. No, I'm not going to apologize. Can I have my iPad, please? So they stole it. Douglas, congratulations, and thank you so much for being on Eusebius Sometimes Live. Oh, thank you, Eusebius. It's good to to be back in South Africa. (laughs) Absolutely. Now, just to set the scene in the unlikely event that I've got some listeners who haven't yet bought the book, but will go and rush to buy it after this interview. We're going to try not to give away spoilers. We're going to speak broadly around the themes of the book. And then I've got a couple of biographical questions also for Douglas as author. But in order for you to be able to enjoy the conversation, I'll do my best to give a, a very terse but sufficiently useful summary of the basic plot. It is set in Glasgow and it tells the story of Mungo and his family. And they are essentially a working class Protestant family. And there are a couple of characters that are important. There is the youngster himself who grows up in a family that is broken and disheveled in many ways. There's his mom, Maureen, who goes through her own trials and tribulations. Um, Dad is no longer around. Mom is around, but not really. She suffers alcoholism, and her addiction is one that the children have to bear the consequences for. And then he's got two siblings. He's got his brother, Hamish, who's uh, the eldest of the lot. Um, He is also addicted, in a sense, addicted to violence, gratuitous violence very often. And he is an absolutely scary but complex character. And then there is his sister. And she suffers 
a very interesting fate as a middle child. Sometimes middle children, like I was in my family, are protected because you're not young enough to have it the worst off. You're not old enough to feel like you should be sort of, you know, deputy parent. But in a sense, Jody does feel like she needs to be a surrogate mother for her younger sibling. And she's also very complicated. She's got dreams of her own. Um, and she really doesn't take kindly to the moral and other deficiencies of mom. And the book is essentially about these four characters in a working class housing estate in Glasgow. And there are many other, I won't call them minor characters, because they're all rounded and full in their own way that intersects the lives of this family. But essentially, that is where the novel starts and lots of things happen uh, along the way. Have I done justice without giving it all away, Douglas? <laughs> you have. You've done. You've done it beautifully. And and actually, Jody is is my favourite character as well. This middle child. She's almost born into the wrong family, where she has all this potential, all this capability, and yet mm. because she uh, grows up in quite a gendered world as a as a young woman, she's expected to take care of her brothers, even though she's neither the the eldest nor the mother. Mm, absolutely. Now the book's got so many different themes. I mean, it examines alcoholism, religious bigotry, familial love, familial hatred, coming of age as queer teenagers, mm -hmm. almost teenagers, in a context of structural violence around you. There is class warfare as well that goes on. And there is pedophilia, possibly. I, I sort of have a grammatical pause because it's difficult to know quite how to to read the violence in that regard and many other themes. And as I said in my written review, the book is not over ambitious despite the multiple themes and it's not overwritten despite the multiple themes and main plot and subplot as well. So what we're going to do, Douglas, is to just really pause over some of these themes um, and we're going to pick them quite randomly because there's so many <laughs> and um, talk as much about the book to make people excited to go and have a read. And for those who've already read it, to just enjoy hearing me ask you some questions about some passages. And to that end, we've um, already selected one passage for reading. And um, then we set the context and then Douglas will read. The neighbors fight as much as their own house fights. And in a sense, the violence from next door can sometimes be a respite from what is happening at home. And the kids try and go over to help Mrs. Campbell, hoping to distract her husband, who is busy beating her up. So that's what's just taken place. And here we go. Jodie exhaled sharply through her nose. Well, I think it's a bloody disgrace the way men get worked up over football. What a bunch of sore losers. Mrs. Campbell twisted free of Jodie's grip. She climbed a few steps and then she turned. She looked confused. No, that's not it at all. It is. The football is just an excuse for men to drink and fight and get all their anger out. You're too wee to know anything about men and their anger. Mrs. Campbell took her damaged arm from her penny pocket. She stroked it, cradled it as though it were a poorly lamb. Every day for 27 years, that man went to the shipyards, Girders as big as corporation buses flying around on chains, a ton weight of steel dangling above his head, and at any minute it could have dropped and killed him and left me with nothing 
but three wains and a divot in the mattress. And he knew it. All those men knew it. Jodie set her jaw. Then he should be relieved that it's all behind him. The woman's gaze travelled out the colourful window and into the back middens. She was bathed in a patchwork of green and blue light, which made her appear sectioned off like the butcher's guide to the very best cuts of meat. Some of the men used to drink six, seven pints of lager at lunchtime. They only had an hour, and yet they'd neck one pint after the other. I heard the barman spend all morning pouring them, and he would line hunters, thousands of pints up along the bar, so the men could just grab it and drown themselves as soon as the lunch bell rang. Oh, and they ran for it. Does that sound like happy men to you? I found that exchange between her and Jodie riveting because Jodie moralizes initially and slowly cuts back on the moralism in the rest of the dialogue. And it says to me several things, and I wondered whether that was the authorial intent as well, that intuitively you might want to say to Mrs. Campbell, oh, for F's sake, snap out of it. You're making excuses for a violent patriarchal man who should be so lucky that you haven't yet divorced him. And yet, on the other hand, she shows understanding of the making of a violent male adult in a capitalist, working-class, downtrodden, forgotten, post-Thatcherite society. And that's quite interesting, isn't it? Because it invites the reader, it certainly did me, to hold two truths at the same time. To judge Mrs. Campbell, to judge her husband, but also to leave the judging mode entirely, Douglas, and to try to understand the subjectivity of, yes, the perpetrator, and yes, the wife that appears at first glance to make excuses. Yeah. You know, life is complicated. And I, what I wanted to do in using this central stairwell, this tenement in Glasgow as a device to, to show the layers of a city, but also the metaphorical layers and the, and the changes that were coming to the city. And so you have these two young children who are 15 and 16, and they're in the 1990s. And, and Jodie, as a young woman, has a very strong sense of feminism. She also has a future ahead of her that will allow her to be independent and to achieve whatever it is she, she can set her mind to, if she can survive her brothers, that is. And then their neighbour, uh, Mrs. Campbell, is a very good woman, but she has grown up in a very traditional patriarchal uh, system and has raised two or three young boys and with a husband who is a very gruff, stoic, angry man. And what I wanted to do was to show these layers in this conversation, because of course Jodie is correct that nobody should put up with this violence at home, nobody should put up with being treated in this way. But Jodie does that from a very principled point of view. It's just black or white to her. She, she understands this is wrong. And what Mrs. Campbell says to her is, is look, sometimes we don't know where the hurt begins. There's a, enough hurt going around here. And she tries to show a level of sympathy for her husband and for men like her husband to say, look, this is how we treated men. And this is what you get when you treat men this way. You know, the, the chapter goes on to sort of give you slightly more context. 
And I think, you know, there is a lot of those struggles that are happening, both in this micro relationship, but also in the city and the world as a whole. Here is a very traditional industrial world that's ending. And here is the new guard that's coming with characters like Jodie and Mungo, who are much more uh, accepting, much more liberal, much more tolerant, and, and much more optimistic as well. And, and I wanted to have these worlds collide. Mm. And what is gentle in the little soliloquy from Mrs. Campbell is without being didactic, which would have taken us into nonfiction territory, she very gently alludes to the fact that ultimately the men at the docks in the shipping industry are cogs in the capitalist wheel. Mm-hmm. And no one asks them at the end of the day with genuine empathy rather than just rhetorically, how mm-hmm. are you? How was your day mm-hmm. when you could have been killed while yeah. making money for some or other baron? And that's an important context, isn't it? Because the book has got a economic structure within which the stories are located. This is not a story between middle-class, great British citizens. We have a recurring set of references to the class wars of the 80s spilling over into the 90s. Mm-hmm. I mean, we find it even in small little tidbits of conversation, like Hamish trying to stub out any kind of dreams that Mungo might have, or Jody and being disparaging about either of them yearning for the possibility of a life in the city in London, being able to fly down for the day and back mm-hmm. up. That's right. That's right. And and they're really caught in this moment that is that is changing. And when I was writing Shaggy Bane, I was very aware of the harm that men could do, um, especially to to women and also to other young men who were so outside of gender norms. But it felt too facile to me to to just take that as someone doing bad. I had to go back and really think. What was the structure? What was the system that the men, that my father, that my uncles, that the men around me were also stuck in? And so why did it make them that way? And I had to reflect on the fact that we had coal miners that would go down into the earth and would spend all day in the dark and could be killed at any moment. And often they were. And they would come up and they wouldn't receive so, you know, they wouldn't receive a lot of wages, but they had to keep doing this. And so you could never really ask them, did they feel vulnerable? Did they feel scared? Were they fulfilled? Mm. Did they want poetry in their lives? Because if you did, Mm. then they couldn't face the mine again the next Mm. day. They couldn't go back into the darkness. And when you ask men to be stoic and silent in that way, to be closed off, then a lot of Mm. things, a lot of badness can flow from that. We need to allow every human being to to talk about their vulnerabilities, their uncertainties, their ambitions. And I wanted just to really show how we're all sort of stuck in this in this constellation, how what we ask of one person uh, will have results for another person. And it's true that, you know, that the men did these hugely dangerous industrial jobs and then Thatcherism came along and it swept them within a generation into the dustbin. You know, it pushed them to the side. 
And so not only did it say, thank you, you are not required, we don't care for what it is you've done for this nation, but it also left them without an identity. And that's one of the central wrangles for these younger men that are coming up, for Hamish, for, for Mungo. You know, if all of the men that they can look up to did these industrial jobs that are no longer required, then who are we as men? Um, who are we going to become tomorrow? And, and this is an interesting time in working class history in the UK because it's, it's not the stunned, shocked moment that the Shuggy Bane characters went through. Now cynicism has started to creep in. Now these young men are looking around and they're saying, why should I care? Because you don't care about me. Shocked. That's, that's so profound and so true. Can we talk about Hamish for a couple of minutes? Hamish, if you are unkind or snobbish or unthinking or unfeeling as a reader, you might seem as a brute. He gets a little bit of humanity, particularly mm. as a father, but his brutish elements need to be understood in light of the history that you've just summated, the social context within which mm. the story takes place. I mean, he tries to get his little brother involved in sectarian mm -hmm. gang battles between Protestants and Catholics. Mongo dares to ask him to provide a rationale. He first attempts to do so, and eventually... His attempt peters out in in a sentence that sentence or two and and I quote Honestly, I don't really know, but it's fucking good fun. And as I said to another mate of mine, um Douglas, that that, that I discussed the novel with, um you know it's it's gratuitous violence because when he says I don't know it's good fun, it's it's basically saying, I do not need there to be even inside of the language of violence to be a sort of means and justification for what I'm about to do. And to put that plainly, am I suggesting that violence can sometimes be rational? Not really, but what I am suggesting is that, you know, if you are a criminal who wants to steal my purse, Inside of your violent intentions, your criminal intentions, if you can take my purse without killing me or hitting me with a baseball bat, then take the darn purse and off you go. But a lot of the violence that these guys are involved in seem to be violence for its own sake. And that's the specific meaning um, of gratuitous that I'm trying to lift to the surface. And that's quite scary, isn't it? Because it, it means that people are not just involved in violence, let's say, for example, to stay alive, a kind of sort of existential logic, but violence has almost become um, a form of entertainment. It keeps you busy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many different uh, frequencies to it, I think. Uh, and, you know, Hamish is a young man. He's 18 years old, 19 years old in the early 90s. And he is, in fact, very industrious. You know, he has decided to make a career of his criminality. I mean, it's not perhaps what we would hope for Hamish, but, but he's very successful at it. To the point where he has no real sort of physical, <laughs> I don't know how you would say it. He has no real uh, inclination physically to be able to be this gang lord because he's only five foot two. He wears really thick glasses. And yet he's so resourceful. He's so industrious. He's, 
he's really risen to the top quite quickly and he leads this young Protestant gang. But of course, there's something about men needing to have a reputation and have a respect. And even on the streets that you live in, it's important as a man that you that you can make a name for yourself. And some of us get to do that through our education, our careers, the things we do in the world, but some of us also get to do it with, with how we are respected by the other men around us. And so this is very important for Hamish. But there's a socioeconomic need for the violence, but there's also a recreational pleasure in it. And, you know, they're growing up on a housing scheme or a housing estate that doesn't have many amenities. There might not be a library. There's not a swimming pool. There might not be a community centre. You know, these were built very hastily in the 1950s and there wasn't much thought to giving working class families something to do. You know, it was a place to store a family and then they would go to their work and then they would come back. And so they weren't really built with this idea of, you know, we need a cinema, we need a shopping centre, we need these other things. So there's really truly nothing for these young men at 16, 17, 18 to do. And so violence becomes recreational. And, and I can talk from personal experience that actually it used to be a very sick kind of thrill on a Saturday night to have drink laggers in the park and then to go and fight the lads from the other housing scheme. There is a very masculine thrill to it, you know, and, and the other lads enjoyed it too. And so, and so Hamish is really caught up in this in this system where we're fighting the Catholics from the other side of the motorway bridge, gives him some kind of reputation, gives him something to do, but also ensures his place at the top of this of this tribe. Yeah, I exactly for that reason, I had flashbacks to watching Clockwork Orange mm-hmm. very often during right. some of those some of those passages. That's right. Let's talk a little bit about about Maureen. Mm. I don't know whether it was intentional in the craft of your novel, but it struck me when I was thinking about the novel as I was writing the review that actually, and without overthinking the the design process, it's quite poignant that she doesn't really make an entry in terms of a scene physically arriving on set, as it were, until a good 30, 40 pages into the novel. Um, and that's quite apt in a sense because she really is the prototypically absent alcoholic parent. Mm-hmm. And she herself can be unpredictable. And her relationship in particular with Mongo is one that that certainly resonated with me. And I I wrote a little bit about how we did so, because it reminded me of a relationship with my mum, mm. who was not diagnosed with alcoholism because of the shame attached to that label. Mm. And no one in my family would say so. Some would probably say I must stop using that label in my work publicly as a writer and broadcaster. But I think she was, and I can say that without, you know, sort of shaming her posthumously. Um, but in working class community in particular, we, we're scared to talk about the disease of alcoholism. But he walks with mom who is drunk and doesn't quite know how she will behave. And he says the, he says the following about, you know, about that, um, moment. And it just resonated with me personally so much after she'd had quite a bit to drink. She had oriented their walk towards the city center. Maybe the casino would still be open or the penny puggies on the central station. Tetty Bogle liked lights. He had hoped she would lose heart, but she didn't. 
The drink could flatten her or give her a peculiar stamina. The terror lay in the fact that he never knew which it would be. I might have mangled one or two words there, but no, you did it a sentence that for me that is every single child that has had a parent or an elder in their home who is an alcoholic will recognize are those two sentences. The drink could flatten her or give her a peculiar stamina. The terror lay in the fact he never knew which it would be. I mean, it's, 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 yo, I don't know whether you were drawing on personal experience there, but such simple English sentences grammatically, but so profound in terms of capturing the unspoken fear of children in a household with adults who are alcoholic. That's right. And, and I'm so touched to hear your own story, Eusebius. And you know that I grew up with a mother who lost her own struggle with addiction. And one of the things I'd always wanted to show was just how unpredictable that was and, and the peculiar terror that comes for those children, not knowing the, the adult they're going to encounter from not only day to day, but sometimes hour to hour. You know, you can the alcohol can make you melancholy, it can make you isolated, it can make you reflective, it can make you seek a party and be very gregarious, it can make you utterly terrifying and, and self-harming. And as children, you're forever watching that parent and wondering where the addiction is going to take them. But it was it was a challenge for me to write Maureen Hamilton. And when I began writing Young Mungo, I was wondering if I was going to write about an alcoholic mother again because I'd done it with Shaggy Bain. And I thought, actually, I am going to because the comment that I'm trying to make is not that these are singular people on the landscape. It's that there is too much drink, too much addiction in these communities. And in a way, I could write 50 different women who are suffering with alcoholism because their alcoholism doesn't define them. They are still individual characters before they get into addiction. That is just a facet or that is a, a, a coping mechanism or a crutch that they that they turn to. And Maureen is so different. I mean, she's, she's a very young mother. She's only in her mid-30s. And she feels with Mungo about to turn 16 that she's raised her three children. And she hasn't really had a life of her own, really. She hasn't, because she lost her husband very young or, or the father of her children very young, she hasn't known what it is to be loved. She hasn't known what it is to have a good time or to have a party. And I wanted to write this woman that was that was very taboo for a mother because she's not very maternal. She's she's kind of raised these children and now she's she's done and she wants to get back to the party. And so when the children need someone to look after them most, she just keeps disappearing. She just ups and leaves because there might be something more interesting happening up the street. And, and that's, quite a, that's quite a risky character to write because as you had said, you know, first of all, admitting that you have alcoholism or you have addiction is absolutely taboo. There's so much shame around it. But then also writing someone who might not be a good woman, especially in a country like Scotland or, or in the Celtic tradition where the working class mother is absolutely a hero, absolutely a saint. And then wanting to say, actually, maybe that's not always true. You know, they can also be very Absolutely. fallible human beings was, was quite a risky thing for me to do. We're going to touch briefly on two themes and then a couple of rapid fire biographical stuff around the writing process. Um, I love the fact that the book. Um, so this friend that I keep referring to, I, I should honor him, is well known in South Africa and in internationally for his AIDS activism work um, and and really you know he's just been uh, 
so stunning when I was in conversation with him around this novel um, for an earlier podcast while I was waiting um, also to eventually have an opportunity to directly speak to you, Mark Haywood. And he said something along the effect of, along the effect of, the, or the lines of, Douglas always manages to find the beauty even in the ugly. And he said that in response to me reading these lines, and this is the sort of coming of age subplot between Mongo and another youngster. And this is queer love in the context of everything else that's going on in this violent community. And this is the first time they were about to kiss. Mungo looked both up and down the hill, and then he kissed James quickly on the lips. It was like hot buttered toast when you were starving. It was that good. I want to ask you two things about that passage. Was it hard to think about the aesthetic quality of your sentences that are demanded of any writer worth their salt while writing about such difficult issues involving alcoholism, violence, sectarian bigotry, and whatnot. And and then more directly, um, <laughs> you know, sexual identity and sexual orientation. I mean, homophobia um, in the context of everything else is is a lot to negotiate. And how important was it um, to to make sure that you explore that theme, but doing it so lovingly that it's not a sort of just a sad portrayal of queer people experiencing violence, although there's that, and I won't give it away, it's an important part of the plot, but that queer love, especially queer teenage love, could be described so beautifully in between the rest of the violence. Yeah. That's good. Those are two great questions. You know, the the first thing is, is every sentence is hard to write. Um, but I, I do try to combine the ugly with the beautiful, but also to write as plainly as I possibly can, because I'm trying to inhabit the consciousness of young men who haven't seen much of the world. And what is more fulfilling to you? What feels better on the lips? What is a simpler pleasure than hot buttered toast? And this kiss was everything of that uh, for this young man who hasn't, you know, tasted champagne or, or anything else. You know, hot buttered toast is the best thing he can imagine. Um, but, but it was important to write about homophobia. You know, I'm a writer and I'm a person who just devours queer literature. But I often didn't see the intersection of, of queer lives and poverty or queer lives and the working class or industrial. You know, it happens. And, and I think about some French writers. I certainly think about Edward Louis. But, you know, I love it when those things intersect together and we, and we talk when we get to see those lives because the consequences, the conflicts, the, the scope of vision, the, the universe that is open to the characters is just so different than it would be to a middle class or an upper middle class person Absolutely. who has so much mobility, who has so many more references to pull on. Um, and so I wanted to write this book about two young working class men who fall in love in a time where it's taboo, first of all, because they are working class, but then it's also taboo because one Mungo is Protestant and James is Catholic. But as we sort of stand on the threshold of, of a queer life that is celebrating so many stories, a queer world that's celebrating so many stories, a real spectrum of experience, I feel sometimes we're quite hasty to erase 
how difficult it is for some queer people and how difficult it was really recently. You know, Young Mungo is not a historical fiction. It's set in the 1990s. It's set in my lifetime. I'm not that old. Um, and I want to I want to just make sure we're... For the record. Yeah. <laughs> for the record, I'm not that old. But I want to make sure we're recording how, you know, even though countries like Scotland and the UK have come so far so quickly, and they really, really, truly have, they also had quite a dark history quite recently. Um, I think that's important. That's so important, Douglas. Yeah. Um, I wrote a piece and I I felt my privilege even in declaring my privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, this being Pride Month, I mean, you are living in New York. We're having this conversation on Zoom. I'm sitting in Santon, which is an elite suburb in Johannesburg. You, a queer married man, I've queer with the long-term partner that I live with, Mm -hmm. with my dog next to me. (laughs) And when we talk about the queer community, Mm -hmm. we often use that kind of phrase quite lazily as if there's an homogenous community. For all the beautiful liberal queer rights jurisprudence we have in South Africa, and the same with decriminalization and everything else in the UK. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that it's easy being gay. And, and it's also important to, to know that Douglas Null, even if you have a working class past like I did, mm-hmm. the Douglas Null in New York City can't speak for a 2022 version of Mungo. No. And that's why it's important to, to continue to write those stories. Because if we only give Douglas Stewart the mic or Eusebius the mic, we're rendering invisible the victims of hate speech, even in our countries where the laws have changed. You are absolutely correct. And I think that's why you have to resist being given that mantle as well, where they say you were talking. Sometimes it's very easy to other queer lives, to other working class lives, because there's just not enough representation of us in literature. And I find that sometimes journalists other me very quickly. They're like, you are speaking for the working class. And I think actually the working class never asked exactly. me to speak for them. Um, and, and we're not yeah. as monolithic as all that. And it's the same for, for queer lives, you know. But one of the things that was most striking is on this tour, I was in Poland recently, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I was talking about what a difference in a country, you know, 20, 30 years can make. And of course, Poland's going through an incredibly difficult time right now with, with queer rights, with women's rights. It's a very conservative country. And the readers there almost couldn't quite believe that we'd come as far as we had. And and I don't think when I was 16, 15, 16, I could believe that Scotland and the UK would come as far as it could. You know, we were still living under Section 28. We were terrified of AIDS as a queer community. We were, um, you know, the age of consent was 21 for queer people. It was 16 for heterosexuals. So there was so much punishing circumstances surrounding coming of age and being gay at that time. And then on top of that, there was poverty and limited worldview and a sort of isolation within a community. And I just had to say to my Polish readers, you know, don't ever lose hope because uh, time will make a huge difference and everything can get better. Last earnest question, but I've loved our conversation and then a couple of rapid fire ones. If the book, in terms of plot, only dealt with all the things we've spoken about in the last 35 minutes, it would still be an excellent book that could get as much critical acclaim and maybe even awards like the first one. And yet there's a part of the plot we usefully have avoided speaking about, and I don't want to speak about it at length because it's a major part of the opening and ending of the book. 
Um, but my goodness, and it's, it's more comment that I want you to respond to. Yo, that that fishing trip. <laughs> I think I think someone would need to do some serious work in the th- in a therapy context if they are unmoved. I I've had so many of your readers locally here in South Africa who were in absolute tears and lots occasioned the tears. But in particular, you know, there's just so much. And poor Maureen, I, I think, um, you know, as, as Mark said to me in our conversation, she made a mistake. And I, when I listened back to our podcast this morning, I realized that, that he put it so wonderfully gently, which does honor to your craft as a writer, because it was almost an off moment. And if you're listening to this, con- to, to this episode, um, I'm being cryptic because I want you to go and buy Douglas's book. Those who, who know, know. And if you don't yet know, come back after you've read the book to come and listen to this part again. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's such a moment, momentary decision that led to that disaster. And, um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm a little bit angry, UCBS. I'll be honest. I, uh, the central question in the book is everyone around Mongo needs him to man up and be a version of a man that they think. Uh, is the right way to be. And that's often uh, more independent, more resourceful, tougher, violent, uh, sexualized towards women. It's all of these things, brave, strong. It's these things that we think men have to be. And so he goes away to the north of Scotland with two friends of his mother's in order to learn how to hunt and to camp and to fish, because these are good masculine things to learn. But it's a betrayal. And I was so angry Because your friend is right that Maureen makes a mistake, but I think many parents made a mistake. I grew up in a time where it was believed that the best place for a young boy to be was in the company of men. And it it could be any men, you know, it could be church leaders, it could be Boy Scout leaders, it could be the guy fixing a car engine up the road, it could be someone fishing in a canal, it could be uh, learning how to play football. You were just always... That as a boy, it was such a gender world. That was the place you were supposed to be. And we just believed that children were always safe there. And of course, most children were, and some children were not. Um, and, and we certainly know that now. But at the time where we had all that naivety, where adults had all that naivety, there was also a real hatred, and we still see this in today's world, mm. directed at young queer kids. Mm. And so they are almost the problem, where the adults never saw their peers as the problem. Mm. You know, we really... We really punish these children, and um, and I'm angry about that. I'm angry about I'm angry about that. And so I wanted to write uh, and just to show, you know, how much danger uh, young people were in, while at the same time we were also vilifying them. Yeah. Okay. A couple of random four or five quick questions. What has been the coolest thing about suddenly being an international sensation as a writer? Oh, it has to be. The other writers I get to meet. It's been fantastic to meet Ali Smith and Colson Whitehead and Bernadine Evaristo and and actually also to meet very powerful women at opposite ends of the social spectrum. I got to meet both Nicola Sturgeon, uh, the First Minister of Scotland, and the Duchess of Cornwall and talk about powerful women who are (laughs) at the opposite end of the class spectrum. So that's been cool. What's been the most annoying? 
between us. You know, I think, I think, I think to go through publishing your book during the pandemic was pretty hard. There came a point where I felt like I didn't know what was reality and what wasn't. And, and I have people come up to me and say, oh, I love your, you know, your room or your office or your sofa. And I think to myself, God, where has my image, where have these videos gone, you know, because I was everywhere and yet I was nowhere. I was stuck at home. Jeffrey Archer claims to write eight hours every single day and does 14 drafts before he hands it in. I think he's lying. What lies do you have? <laughs> what lies do I have? In terms have? of process and habit? Yeah. Oh, I, I, I wish I had that kind of discipline. But then I, I honestly, I, I like writing when I am moved to write. Like I can have a conversation like this and just feel our affinity. And although yeah. it's enough productivity to send my podcast to my manager, I, I suddenly want to write because you've sparked so many thoughts. Or I can listen, you know, to um, Luca, which I thought would be a wonderful soundtrack to many scenes in your book if it was turned into a film. And I played it while writing the book review because I was too happy at the end of your book. And I wanted to be in a more melancholic space while, while writing it. So if I hit the right music, I can write. So I can write at midnight, I can write whenever, but I can't go to work and write as it were. How about you? Yeah, I am. I'm actually still trying to find out the truth about myself, to be honest, because I've had, I'm working on my third novel and every book, uh, my life situation has changed. Um, and so I'm not quite sure what is a lie yet, but I'm, 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 I'm trying to hold myself accountable to coming up with some kind of routine because when I wrote Shuggy I was working full-time in fashion in New York and so sometimes I only got 30 minutes a week 30 minutes a month to write and then when I wrote Young Mungo I was kind of a hybrid of writing full-time and also still working in fashion and so that really changed and it changes I think the flavor of the book too because they're hopefully the reader will feel more propulsion more urgency and now I'm writing full-time and and um, I'm trying to sort of really find out what that truth is. So I think the lie that I lie about all the time is that it's, you know, that I'll do it and I'll do it and I'll get to it. And sometimes <laughs> I, never, I never get to it. Can I ask an annoying question that we get as authors, but, but I genuinely actually, I genuinely want to know. Mm. I think, I think having interviewed you a couple of times now, you'll, you'll, you'll give me the benefit of the doubt in terms of my intention. Um, just how autobiographical are these works? I, I almost wanted to give not the characters only, but I wanted to give you a hug because I thought, mm. Jesus, especially what happens on the trip, mm. you have to be tapping into a deep place mm. of what you've experienced or observed. Mm. There are some themes in novels. I don't care how brilliant your capacity for imagination is and for empathizing with people whose lives are different from your actual life, um, and how brilliant your skill is aesthetically as a writer, there are parts there that can only come from knowing. Yeah, I think I know the world that I'm writing about, and I've lived similar lives to both Shaggy and Mungo, and also the, the next book that I'm working on. And I think part of the desire to write is the desire to untangle that experience. But even Shuggy, which I've been clear about, does come from a, a very, I live a very parallel life to Shuggy. Most of the events in it are fictionalized. You know, they might have the, their seed in, in some kind of truth or something that I've experienced, but they become a work of fiction pretty quickly. And the same is true of, of Mungo. Um, you know, it's, it's often has its, 
its roots in lots of small things that have happened to me, or things that almost happened, or things that could have gone very wrong. And I think, well, what would happen? You know, they asked me a question. And in fact, Shuggy asked me a question, which became Mungo. And it was really about like how safe are young boys around men and 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 what does it mean to become a man? And I couldn't answer that with Shuggy Bane, but it, it became it became the central pillar of Mungo. Mm. Second last quickie. If lots of reviewers or even one or two were to describe Young Mungo as, let's say, quote unquote, a bleak novel, would you be annoyed mm. by that kind of tag? No, because I think people also describe Shuggy as bleak, and so <laughs> I've just, I've, I think they're much, I think they're much richer than that, and I think sometimes it reveals more about the reviewer than it does about the. Book. I agree. Um, yeah, because again, it just people bring their different contexts and their own yeah. lives. No, I agree with that, Douglas. I have so much fun privately with my other author friends, where we review uh-huh. the reviewers. You can't do so. <laughs> you can't do it too, too, too publicly. Otherwise, you'll be seen as a grumpy writer who doesn't want to be critiqued. But um, yeah. just as our books tell us a lot about ourselves, even when we label it fiction, um, similarly, mm-hmm. reviewers don't realize how reviews can be really cool or interesting, good analytical reflections on the works they've engaged with, but it can also tell us about them. <laughs> 100%. Well, first of all, I want to be in that group chat with you and your friends because <laughs> I want to be on the inside of that. But but I think I've come across the, uh, I understood quite early in Shuggy's life that most of the people who uh, have been reviewing my books, not yourself, but certainly in the British press, um, you know, have spent a lot of time inside the ivory towers of education and come from a very privileged background. And so they're often, you know, if you're if you're reviewing for these huge newspapers, you're often looking at Shuggy uh, like it's the other edge of the planet for you. You know, it's it's a life so far from your own. And so I just have to come to accept that. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's annoying because it's and I think we've got to write back against that. I think uh, of a really good book like um, Owen Jones's book, Chavs, and mm. um, the establishment has to put up with it because here you have, and him and I were contemporaries, um, here you have someone who's a, you know, working class British kid gets an undergraduate from Oxford and writes back mm-hmm. against that kind of ivory tower nonsense. Um, and mm-hmm. I think, and I think that that's important. So we need to expand the stories, but also quite frankly, in book journalism, who does the reviewing is also pretty important. And that leads me to, to my last question. I think, I don't know, actually, I, I shouldn't put this as a declarative. Um, I'm going to have to mull over this. Um, the fact that you are queer, the fact that I'm queer, the fact that, you know, that there are aspects of the characters' lives that center around homophobia and coming of age of the queer characters. I mean, that's important, but, um, I wonder how you feel about your work being classified as gay literature. I, I often have this perverse little game I play when I go into second-hand bookstores or even, regular bookstores, where I love to go and see where a book like Giovanni's Room is classified, whether mm-hmm. you'll find it under general fiction or under LGBT sort of corner. <laughs> and most bookstores, book if they have two copies, I see they cover their bases. One will be in the one section and one will be in the other. Because mm-hmm. even the love affair between, you know, Mungo and, and his... Catholic um, lover is mm-hmm. a subplot 
in the book, mm-hmm. even though the book is centrally about Mongo and Mongo is even centered in the title. But you can't reduce the book to being a sort of a gay book that you're going to, you know, deliberately pick only for queer studies. Um, and God forbid, not so much for your, your main curriculum in the English literature department. And, and I wonder how you classified, you know, and I don't think classification is necessary, but you kind of know what I mean, or whether you yeah. are yet to write your Giovanni's room. Uh, well, actually, I love that you began the conversation and you didn't talk about queerness. You didn't talk about the love affair at the heart of the book, because I try to do that with my novels. And you see it, I think, in Shuggy, where queerness isn't often the central force of a life or it isn't the only thing that's going on. You know, my character's sexuality are not the only things they have to contend with. Yes. They have much more pressing things. They sometimes have three or four different issues that they have to resolve. And so in a way, it reduces my work to, to label me as just a queer writer. But, but I often see people trying to find out what intersection I sit at. Am I Scottish? Am I American? <laughs> Am I working class? Am I middle class? Am I, you know, a literary fiction or is it queer? And, and I just think to myself, have fun with that because people have, you know, been trying to put me in buckets for years. And, and it's none of my business at the end of the day. But I think lives are far more expansive than our sexuality. Yeah. And I think even yeah. queer lives uh, in my fiction are, are not the only things the characters are, are wrestling with. You've been very generous. All the best um, with the summer. I hope you get to enjoy it a little bit. A respite mm-hmm. from the book tours, but I hope the sales will continue. And we're already looking forward to the next book. Thank you so much, Douglas. Thanks for coming on my platform. Thank you, Eusebius. It's always wonderful to talk to you. I look forward to seeing you soon.